Zephaniah chapter 2, a solemn call to repentance. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Starting at verse 1, hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God profitable for us. Gather yourselves together. Yea, gather together, O nation not desired. Before the decree bring forth, before the day passes the chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. For Gaza shall be forsaken, and Ashkelon a desolation. They shall drive out Ashdod at the noonday, and Ekron shall be rooted up. Woe unto thee, inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you. O Canaan, the land of the Philistines, I will even destroy thee, that there shall be no inhabitant. And the seacoast shall be dwellings and cottages for shepherds, and folds for flocks. And the coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They shall feed thereupon. In the houses of Ashkelon shall they lie down in the evening. For the Lord their God shall visit them and turn away their captivity. I have heard the reproach of Moab and the revilings of the children of Ammon, whereby they have reproached my people and magnified themselves against their border. Therefore, as I live, saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be as Sodom and the children of Ammon as Gomorrah, even the breeding of nettles and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall spoil them and the remnant of my people shall possess them. This shall they have for their pride because they have reproached and magnified themselves against the people of the Lord of hosts, the Lord will be terrible unto them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and men shall worship him, every one from his place, even all the isles of the heathen. Ye Ethiopians also, ye shall be slain by my sword, and he will stretch out his hand against the north, and destroy Assyria, and will make Nineveh a desolation and dry like a wilderness. And flocks shall lie down in the midst of her. All the beasts of the nations, both the cormorant and the bittern, shall lodge in the upper lintels of it. Their voice shall sing in the windows. Desolation shall be in the thresholds, for he shall uncover the cedar work. This is the rejoicing city that dwelt carelessly, that said in her heart, I am, and there is none beside me. How has she become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down in? Everyone that passeth by her shall hiss and wag his hand. Thus far the reading of the word of Almighty God from Zephaniah chapter 2. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for your call to us to repent, to turn from ourselves, to gather ourselves together, to seek the Lord and to remember your judgments that are in all the earth. 
Have mercy upon us. Guide and direct us. And fill us with your spirit as we consider your most sacred oracles. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We continue our series in Zephaniah, having looked at chapter 1, the incomplete reformation of Judah judged. Now in chapter 2, a solemn call to repentance. John Calvin, in his commentary on Zephaniah, says, The more severe God is when he chastises us and makes known our sins and sets before us his wrath, the more clearly he testifies how precious and dear to him is our salvation. In other words, God's threats of judgment are meant to call us to repentance leading unto salvation. William Perkins, in his commentary on Zephaniah 2, he says, The prophet in the first chapter of this prophecy rebuketh the Jews of three notable crimes, idolatry, fraud, and cruelty. In this second, he exhorts them to repentance, and withal reproveth some of their special sins. In the three first verses, he propoundeth the doctrine of repentance and addeth some special reasons to move and stir them up to the practice of it. Last week, as I mentioned, we saw chapter 1, an incomplete reformation judged. This week, God willing, chapter 2, a solemn call to repentance. And then finally, we'll conclude with about four weeks considering chapter 3. Verses 1 through 3, then, of chapter 2, we have the solemn call to the Jews to, to repent. Notice here in verse 1, we have the duty to be performed, urgently commanded, and to whom it must be done, who are the objects of this command. Notice he says, verse 1, gather yourselves together, yea, gather together. Now, when God repeats in the Hebrew Old Testament or even in the New Testament, it's to emphasize the urgency, the importance. This must be done. Everything God says must be done. But this puts it at the top of the list as if he were raising his voice to emphasize very clearly. Gather, gather, he says. And who must be gathered? Themselves. Gather yourselves, he says. Now this word gather is used as you gather chaff away from the grains, in other words. Or if you go to get sticks that you're going to burn, you gather them up in your arms. Gather yourselves, he says. William Perkins again, in repentance, a man gathereth himself and all his wits together, which afore were dispersed and wandered up and down in vanity. Repentance is a gathering of your thoughts and a turning from your ways to God's most righteous ways in recognition that your thoughts have been vain, that they've been scattered hither, thither, and yon, that you have not been in your right wits, and now you've come to your wits, you've gathered yourselves together as God has commanded. And who must do this gathering? Also in verse 1, O nation, he says, this is an insult this is the word goy in the Hebrew Old Testament. Or in the Septuagint, the ethnos, the heathens, the nations outside of Israel. Johannes Amark in his commentary says, where the word nation is plainly not put as a reference merely to the multitude of people. Yeah, a nation has a lot of people, right? But he's not just referring to the fact that you have a lot of people. He goes on. 
but rather notes their vice, their impurity, and their worthlessness. O nation of Gentiles, you who profess to be the people of God, you are worthless, he says. You are unclean. You are vile. And therefore, you are not desired. This word means to love or long for something. In fact, it's related to the word silver. People long for silver. In fact, the word covetousness in the Greek means to want silver. I want silver. Give it to me. I long for it. Nobody longs for you, he says. God does not yearn over you any longer. You are a nation not longed for, not coveted, not desired. The Septuagint reads, not disciplined, not trained. You haven't been taught the basics. You don't even know how to please your father, in other words. So the Lord does not desire this people, but they have a duty to God to gather themselves together, to urgently gather together, O nation not desired. When were they to do this? We've seen the duty and to whom they were to do it. We've seen that they were to do it to themselves, that they were the parties addressed, this nation not desired. When were they to do this? Well, I think in a couple months, maybe we could do that a few years out. Maybe we'll make a plan. Okay, maybe we'll have a five-year plan of gathering together. We'll make it happen sometime. We'll schedule you in, Lord, maybe a little. Before, 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 he says in verse 2. Three times this word, before. Our English Bible adds it a fourth time. But there in the Hebrew, three times he says, before this, before this, before this. Make sure it happens right away, in other words. Before the decree, bring forth. This word decree is like a statute. Something written down, a law. God can have statutes for our moral conduct, but God also has statutes for the falling out of events. This we call his decree of providence, his will of decree. God says, I have a day fixed in which you will be judged. And this day that is decreed will bring forth, just like a woman brings forth her baby. It's the same word in Hebrew. This decree is pregnant. This decree is in the ninth month. And the day of the decree is at hand. And before that decree comes forth, you must repent. You must gather yourselves together. You must collect yourselves. It will be too late. Before the day pass as chaff, it's going to slip away from you. Time keeps slipping, the song says, slipping away. Tempus fugit. The ancient Romans used to say, time is flying. It's running away from you. It'll be like chaff that blows away with the wind. And before you know it, your opportunity will be gone before you know it. Our life is a vapor. The day of judgment comes. We must gather ourselves together, repent of our sins before it's too late. That's what he's saying. Verse 2, before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you. You ever see these movies where they use little Hebrew phrases? There's a movie A.D. They say, Shalom Aleichem. 
Peace be upon you. That's what they say. This is wrath upon you. It's the same word, alehem, upon. It comes down on top of you. It lights down like the dew. This is the fierce anger of the Lord that will light upon you. Falling down from above, can you escape the dew? (laughs) No, it's going to get you. You're outside. The dew gets you. You're not under refuge. You will have dew coming down upon you. And if you have no refuge, he says, my wrath will come upon you. There's no way to avoid it. There's no way to escape, but by repentance and do it before this day comes. Before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. God has set a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained, whereof he's given assurance unto all men and that he raised him from the dead. There is a day of judgment. There is an urgency then that we gather ourselves together to stave off the wrath of God for there's nothing in us that commends us. O nation undesired, he calls us. There's no longing I have over you. There's no good in you. So then gather yourselves by repentance. Come together and recognize this and acknowledge that there is a day of judgment. It is decreed by God. It is unstoppable. It is inevitable. It will infallibly come to pass. And there's nothing desirable in us to keep this fixed day away from us. John referred to the wrath to come. The word is very interesting. It means the predestined wrath, the determined wrath, the decreed wrath, the unavoidable wrath. Flee, he says, from the wrath that is destined to come upon you. Flee to Jesus. He is the refuge. Turn from your sins. Take shelter in his righteousness. Flee from the wrath to come, the destined or decreed wrath. Then he addresses the godly. Verse 3. Seek ye the Lord. What does that mean? What is it to seek after God? It could be a nebulous term. Well, I have no idea what it means to seek God. I know the Bible tells me I'm supposed to. I know the Bible says there is none that seeketh after God. But what exactly does it mean? Well, listen to the context. What did he talk about in chapter 1? Worshiping God, swearing to him, not using violence toward your neighbor or oppression in positions of power. He gave them and set before them the sins that they had committed. Is that seeking God? To swear by Milcom while you swear to the Lord? To have a worship that's determined by creature worship as well as by God's ordinance in his word? Matthew Poole comments on this phrase, Seek ye the Lord. Turn to him with sound and true repentance. Pray for pardon. Engage in new obedience inquire in the law what is your duty and do it fear worship depend on the lord alone that is seeking god 
True repentance, prayer for pardon, new obedience, searching scripture, doing what it says, fearing and worshiping and relying on God alone, that is seeking the Lord. And who is to do this duty? All ye meek of the earth. Now meekness is a very good term. It means one that can be brought under a yoke. One who will not be stiff when you push them. God wants to push us in a particular direction. Those who are not meek will kick against it. No, I don't want to go that way. No, stiff-necked. I don't want to come under the yoke. I don't want to go down. I want to go up. The meek are those who are flexible when God comes to judge. When God comes to say, you deserve to be punished. Those who are not meek say, no, I don't. I'm a good person. Why should bad things happen to me? The meek say, yes, Lord. I am worthy of worse than you have said you will give me. Don't stiffen or harden your conscience. When God chastises us, when he calls us to suffer, these things are to improve the meek. When they see the judgments of God, when they hear the threatening of God, the meek will seek the Lord. They will fear the Lord. They will repent of their sins. And what else describes the meek in verse 3? Which have wrought his judgment. You've done what Josiah did. You entered in with your whole soul and you said, God, thank you for this reformation. Thank you for a good king. Praise you, O Lord. We finally have a king who punishes idolatry. We finally have a temple rebuilt. We heard the law read by our king before all the people gathered together in your holy and repaired worship. Oh, God, thank you for your judgments. You wrought his judgment. You meek of the earth. You're the faithful remnant. What is your duty? Seek righteousness. Seek meekness, he says. Yes, you started well. That's good. Carry it on to perfection, as Paul says, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Since you have these promises, dearly beloved, let us purify ourselves from all defilement of flesh, your acts of worship, and spirit, the inward affection and the choice of your will and the thoughts of your mind according to his word. Seek righteousness. The reformed need further reformation. Yes, you went along with Josiah, but go further, go all the way. The reformed need further reformation. The meek need more meekness. The lawful need to continue to conform themselves to the law. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. But wait, aren't we already meek? Yes, that's the point. As Augustine said, the perfection of the saints resides in this, that they realize they're not perfect, that they want to move on toward perfection. The reformed need further reformation. The meek need more meekness. And the lawful need to continue to conform themselves to the law. Why? It may be, he says. This expresses a hope with some doubts. This is the word in Hebrew. I have a hope that this may be the case, but there are no guarantees here. Things are that bad. 
There's no guarantee that when the wrath of God comes against your nation that you'll be spared. But this is the only hope you have. It may be if you seek the Lord, if you seek righteousness, if you seek meekness, it may be ye shall be hid in the day. That day, remember, is a day of calamity. When the wrath of God comes down from above like dew onto the earth, the day that will pass as chaff and it'll be gone before you know it, the day that God decreed and set up for judgment, that day's coming and you might be hid, he says, when that calamity comes upon your nation. There may be some room for safety for some. I note this doctrine then. National judgments and calamities fall upon the wicked and the just because those who are just are only so relatively. We're not absolutely just in this life. As I said, our perfection is to know that we are imperfect. We too need repentance and reformation. Perhaps we might say, not as badly as them, but God doesn't measure us by other men, does he? He measures us by his laws. He measures us by his standards. And when the nation falls to judgment, we will partake in its sufferings. Let us then not rest content with being meek, but let us move on to more meekness. As he says, you meek of the earth, seek meekness. You that have wrought righteousness, seek after righteousness. Let us do God's commandments. Let us seek to do so most thoroughly, more and more universally, more consistently in both tables of the law, in our attitudes and our actions, in our words, in our affections, in the morning, at noon, and at night, on every day of the week, in all seasons of life, in pain and in pleasure, in fullness and in want. Let us be thoroughly reformed in all aspects of our lives and press on to perfection. That's what he's calling them to. Don't rest on your laurels. Yes, you don't swear by Milcom. Yes, you love the Reformation. Yes, you love the true worship of God, but move on in holiness. Let me give you a word of consolation. Judgment is most certainly upon our land. We've seen God's judgments for decades. How can those who are sodomites openly proclaim it and not be put to death? Because God has judged your nation. We're already judged. We have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. We said Sigmund Freud is our savior. Carl Rogers is our savior. Dr. Phil is our savior. Our president is our savior. Did we seek to the Lord? Did we inquire after him? Well, yeah, sort of. We swore to him, and then we swore by Milcom. We swore by Freud. We mixed our Christianity with a little bit of paganism. (laughs) You know, not as bad as those guys down the street. And God says, that's enough. I will judge your nation. Our nation will have misery, destruction, wasting, starvation, disease. What should we do? Panic? Prep? Be addicted to the gloom and doom on the internet? What does God say? 
Seek, he says, the Lord. Seek meekness and righteousness. Do his will. Do your duty. Be anxious for nothing. Do not make excuses for your disobedience or indolence. Oh, I'm not as bad as that guy. And those guys are really bad. They got the rainbow flag on their church. They're still worshiping Milcom. We don't do that. Well, here God says, you have work to do too. There is judgment coming. You might be spared when God judges your nation, but if he doesn't spare you, you've got work to do anyways. Make no excuses. Do not be indolent. Get to work for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now God turns his attention to the neighboring nations surrounding them. And let me ask you a question. When people hear that America is under judgment, I know people have said, well, I'm going to move to another country. (laughs) Really? You think that's going to do it? What happens to the Philistines right next door? What's going to happen to them? For Gaza, that great city Gaza shall be forsaken. Oh, well, I'll move to Texas. I'll move to Florida. I'll move to Russia. I'll move to Poland. No, it's going to find you. The judgment will find you. The Jews could not flee to their neighbors. Where were they supposed to go? Well, that's what he's saying, isn't it? Gather yourselves together. Come before me. Seek the Lord, he says. Seek after meekness and righteousness. That's the only remedy. It's not moving. It's not going to your neighbors in Gaza. But Lot said, is this not a little one? Remember Zoar? Can't I just, you told me to go to the hills but, and to obey you, but here's this city. Can I go there? What happened there? Did that save him? No, he wouldn't listen to God. And then because he wouldn't listen to God, his wife looks back. His daughters, well, they commit unspeakable acts with him. And we're going to read about those countries here in a minute. Seek refuge in God. Not in these other places, he's saying. Ashkelon? Desolation. Now this should awaken them. Ashkelon, the great place where David said, let them not speak of this in Ashkelon, in the house of their gods, when they praise their false gods and say, oh, the great things we've done to Saul and Jonathan and all of his sons. Let them not speak of it in that great city. That great city is a desolation. Nobody lives there anymore. When we see the judgments of God on other places, when we see calamities around the world, oh, America, see your own doom as in a mirror. Our doom is coming. Our judgment is here. The wrath of God. And he says, now, right now, before the day comes and you're all wiped out, seek after judgment. Let us tremble when we see the judgments of God, whether on other persons, other nations, other churches, other families, let us tremble to be like them, lest we partake in their judgments. Then he goes to the Cherethites, verse 5. Woe unto the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Cherethites. 
Do you guys remember the Cherethites and the Pelethites? These are like, in ancient times, the Swiss. They were an army for hire. You could hire these people and they'd come and they'd be fierce. They would get the job done, I tell you. In fact, David hired them as his men to protect him. Remember Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, over the who? Cherethites and the Pelethites. Their name means executioners, foreign mercenary soldiers. They served as the bodyguard for King David. Some people believe they were Cretans or the first of the Philistines, or maybe both. Maybe they came from Crete to the Philistine land. But in any case, that's who they were. They were invincible, yet not to God. God was going to destroy the nation of the Cherethites. Every man might tremble when he hears of you, but you're nothing. You're no match for God. In fact, it's going to be so bad that when I bring back the house of Judah, or when I leave a remnant here from the Chaldean destruction, they're going to farm your land. They're going to have sheep that they take up there and graze. The meek ones, my people that I might spare in this national calamity, they're going to inherit the earth. They're going to have your land and they're going to use it. Can you think of shepherds overcoming the Cherethites? No way. That can't happen. And yet God accomplishes that very thing. For the Lord, he says, their God shall visit them and turn away their captivity. Captivity will be led into captivity, as we'll consider this evening from Ephesians chapter 4. Christ redeems his people. He brings away the curse. He takes them out of bondage and captivity itself, Satan and sin and death and the grave are brought into captivity by our Lord Jesus Christ. The wrath of God is poured out no longer upon his people. They will return to the inheritance he has promised them. Then God turns his attention to the Moabites and to the Ammonites, verses 8 through 11. Whereby, he says, these people, Moab, the revilings of the children of Ammon, they have reproached my people and magnified themselves against their border. These people in Moab and Ammon were boastful. They were hateful of Israel. But notice also they were forgetful. Did they deserve God's judgments? Yes, they did. And yet here they are boasting against the judgments that came against the northern kingdom and also those on the east side of Jordan, their near neighbors. They saw them get taken into captivity and they exalted themselves. Ha! You deserve it! You stole that land from Sihon! You stole that land from Og! Serves you right! They forget. They deserve judgment as well. And God takes up a swearing in their behalf of his people. Therefore, as I live, saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be as what? Sodom. And the children of Ammon as who? Gomorrah. These are Lot's two daughters, the offspring of his two daughters. Where did they leave? Sodom. This is deep irony. I'm going to take you to the destruction that you fled from. You're going to be judged. Why? Because you boasted against my people. Now, God is very merciful. 
He calls the nation of Israel and he calls the people of Judah his nation. Why? Because he names the whole for a part, the better part, the meek who sought the Lord. Those who were of Josiah's Reformation party, those are the characteristic people that he says you're boasting against. My people. I'm their God. They're my people. You're boasting against them. You're going to be taken out. You will be punished severely. You will have the same destruction that your mothers left, that your grandfather left. You're going to receive the judgment of those cities. The residue, he says, of my people shall spoil them, and the remnant of my people shall possess them. Pride goes before what? The fall. And a haughty look before destruction. They will be destroyed. And the very people they boast against, he says, they'll have your land. That's the irony in God's judgment. This, verse 10, this shall they have for their pride. This word, both in the Hebrew as well as the Septuagint, means in place of. I'll take away your pride, he says, set that aside, and in its place you can have my wrath. That's what he's saying. The word is auntie in the Greek. It means to replace something like auntie Christos, the Christ replacer, or Christ died, the just auntie, the unjust, in the place of the unjust. Christ died for us. Pride is eventually replaced in God's justice by misery and damnation. That's what God will give them in lieu of their pride. Verse 11. The Lord will be terrible unto them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth. Think about what this means. What does it mean to be famished? You don't have food anymore, right? What did they bring to their gods? Little meat offerings and drink offerings. Sometimes they'd have a hole inside of the belly. In fact, the pagans in the Asian lands still do this. They put out a bowl of rice for their gods so that their gods can eat, right? Maybe their god is hungry. Maybe they need a little bit of food. What's going to happen to the food supply for your gods? It's going to dry up, he says. I'm going to judge... I'm going to be terrible. You're going to dread me. And all your gods are going to starve to death. That is, too, an irony. They have mouths. They can't talk. They can't even eat. They might have a belly. You can open it up and put food in it, but are they going to consume it? No. Their gods will not have their grain offerings anymore. No more incense to your idols The devotees will abandon their worship because of the judgments of Almighty God. Then he says, and men shall worship him, everyone from his place, even all the isles of the heathen. Genesis 10 verses 1 through 5 tells us that these are the people alienated from the life of God. The inhabitants of Chittim, the Greeks, the Italians, cut out from God's covenant, the isles of of the Gentiles. Jeremiah 2, verses 10 and 11, he asks, have any of these people, the Kedars or the Isles of the Gentiles, have they abandoned their gods? No, of course not. How will you abandon me, the true and the living God, and go for broken cisterns? 
They will worship God, these isles of the Gentiles, these isles of the heathens, everyone from his place. They're not coming to Jerusalem. They're not going to come down and worship here in this place that's being abandoned and forsaken. No, they're going to stay in the isles of the Gentiles, but they will worship me. They will be converted to my true religion. This is how the gods will starve. This is how they will famish. Not with ceremonial concerns to go down to Jerusalem, to a temple, but in their own proper place. In fact, the word can be translated in their homes, in their inheritance, in the place that they dwell. Family worship, in other words local worship. They will have Jehovah worship all the way out among the Gentiles. I note then that God's judgments on the wicked have the end goal of their conversion. We pray, God, strike down the heathen. Why? That they may know that they are but men and that they may seek the Lord. God is appealed to as a righteous judge, but in the middle of his judgments, God remembers mercy. Let us pray that as God sifts and shakes the nations, that his kingdom will come, that his promise in this passage and elsewhere in scripture will be fulfilled, that men will famish their gods, turn to the Lord, worship him in their families and their local places, even all the isles of the heathens cut off from the life of God, that God would engraft them into his people. Then verses 12 through 15, we have the Ethiopians and the Assyrians. Now there are two groups of Ethiopians. There are those just to the west of Egypt, and there are those to the south of Egypt. Most commentators believe these are the Ethiopians to the west of Egypt, closer to Israel, because he seems to be addressing the nations close at hand. In any case, he addresses them, Ye Ethiopians, ye shall be slain by my sword. When Babylon came, when they were taken to captivity, whose sword was it? Nebuchadnezzar's? His great general? No, God's sword. God rules over all. The powers that be upon the earth, even the wicked and the lawless, are under God's providential rule. They belong to him. The shields of the earth, we are told, belong to the Lord. He rules over the issues of church and of state. God's providence rules all. And this is precisely why Nebuchadnezzar was judged. Because he said, no, I have built this great Babylon. This is my great arm. This is my sword. And God said, what? You're like an axe. Are you going to boast yourself against the man who hews with the axe when all you are is an axe? You're just a tool. I'm using you. It is my sword, Ethiopians. You must tremble at me, not at Babylon. What about the Assyrians? That great Nineveh, that once great kingdom that boasted itself so insolently, I am, they said, and there is none other. I am the rejoicing city. I'm a god 
I'm exalted on high. No, you're not. You'll be a desolation. The once great kingdom of the Assyrians will have no inhabitant. All the great kingdoms fall before the anger of the Lord, and there is no greatness that they can say, well, this will spare me. This will save me. I am the great Assyrian kingdom. Well, sorry, you're toast. God's done with you. He'll throw you in the garbage bin of history. You'll be a small migrant people scattered throughout the world and you'll have no place to call your own. And Nineveh, that great city, be a trash heap. That's what it'll be. Roofs will be fallen off. There'll be nothing to protect from the elements. You'll see the cedar work on the inside. Your walls will all be broken down. How's that sound? Sound like you can escape the judgment of God? Israel, there's no place for you to run. You want to run to Nineveh? Nope. Go down to Ethiopia? Sorry. How about Philistines? Nope. What about the Moabites? Nope. There's only one hope for you. There is only one hope. Gather yourselves together. Stop with your scattered and vain thoughts. Come to repentance. Seek the Lord, all ye meek of the earth. The rejoicing city, he says in verse 15, that dwelt carelessly, that said in her heart, I am and there is none beside me. Pride goes before the fall. A blasphemous tongue that thinks itself invincible will be destroyed. Just a matter of time. Let us then seek meekness. Let us seek the Lord. Let us learn to obey Let us tremble when we see God's judgments. Let us take our refuge in Christ, ready to do his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments. Amen.